Hi, friends. Here at Beyond the Crucible, we often get a chance to dive into some of the hardest moments of someone's life, everything from facing loss to trying to find your purpose in life. This summer, we've been working extremely hard to pull together a full e-course, our first, filled with more than three hours of lessons learned on how you can find and fully embrace Second Act Significance. To gain access to this course, visit secondactsignificance.com. That's secondactsignificance.com. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. I will not let this take more than one life. And I have a family and, you know, I did find myself, my my family did suffer early on until I was just able, um, you know, those waves come further. But, you know, make no mistake, my kids walked in on me just crying. And I'm like, I can't do this. You know, if I do this and I'm not here for them, then again, more than one life is lost. And if I go, then, you know, how does that affect my kids? And I just was not willing to make that an option. Not willing to give up, to give into the pain, to give into the loss. Shelley Klingerman determined early on after her brother was slain that those options were not on the table. Not just to protect her family, but to honor the life and legacy of the loved one she lost. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, Warwick and I kick off our fall series, Gaining from Loss, with Klingerman's story of grit in the face of grief after her brother, Greg, a 30-year veteran law enforcement officer, was shot to death in an ambush, a senseless and evil act. From that torturous crucible, Klingerman has dedicated herself to celebrating the essence of Greg and helping his fellow officers via the nonprofit she founded not long after his killing, Project Never Broken. Her organization extends hope and healing through stressing resiliency to other law enforcement officers and their families struggling through the aftermath of trauma. Through every step, she is committed to no longer accepting the things she cannot change, but changing the things she cannot accept. Well, Shelley, again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we really appreciate it. Before we get to, I guess, the event that changed your life and your family's life, I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory of you and your brother and growing up and uh, just a little bit of the kind of backstory of you, uh, your family, your journey before kind of the main event that you know, we'll talk about. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here and share my story, which I will be very honest with you. I have not done much since it Mm. happened. So um, I promise you there will be weak moments, um, as I tell you, uh, just because it's 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 new for me and I will I will get through it. Um, But to answer your question, um, I was brought up in a very traditional um, what I will say is an all-American family. I, I equated us to like the cleavers. Um, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a fireman. And it was just Greg and I. And they were 
um, incredibly present parents. Um, you know, we were very middle class, um, never wanted, you know, for anything and just absolutely knew that, you know, we were um, the center of our parents' world without being completely, you know, self-absorbed about it. Um, but I had an amazing upbringing. Um, I, I, there's nothing that I could say that, um, you know, was traumatic in my, in my childhood. Do you ever look back and obviously, you know, a lot of other people now and think in some sense, we were privileged, not in terms of money, but, you know, unconditional love, a brother and a sister that love each other, parents that love you. You probably have friends that go, you know, uh, Shelly, that wasn't my upbringing. I mean, you don't know what you don't know when you're a kid. As you look back, you think, gosh, we were pretty blessed growing up. Oh, absolutely. My dad, especially, um, you know, I, I didn't know that everybody's dad didn't start their car in the winter and have their <laughs> um, windshields cleared off and and had the car warm. I, I, I honestly just thought that's what dads did. So very much so. I have grown to greatly appreciate um, the solid, loving background and upbringing that I that I had. Um, and, and you talk about Greg and I, we were very different. Um, Greg was quiet. He was introverted. Um, he was incredibly smart. We weren't close or we like really hung out, but there, the, the way that we were brought up, there is absolutely a loyalty and a um, dedication to family. So again, just to, to put a point on that, I also didn't know that it wasn't normal for my dad to go visit his uncle who had never had kids or been married. Um, and he would go sit with him every evening at the nursing home. And again, I just thought that's what you did. I thought that's how every um, parent treated their, their, it was his uncle. My mom's mom lived across the street from us because her, her dad passed away shortly after he retired. So my grandma moved in across the street and I didn't know that, you know, everyone's grandma didn't come over for dinner every night or you went across the street to, to their house at five o'clock every evening for dinner. So yeah, just to, to bring it back around, um, I'm very grateful and, and absolutely do now see what an amazing upbringing I had. Um, and I would say that my mom, dad, Greg, and I were like a tent, you know, we were the four poles in a tent. So, you know, when we talk about what happened recently, when you pull one of those four poles out that you, you know, make up that tent, it collapses. And that's kind of what happened. Just before we get to that. So uh, you grow up, go to college, and obviously, uh, you went one direction. I mean, every person has their own direction, career, life. So just talk about uh, kind of what you did after college and you know, before the event, which we'll get to in a second, mm -hmm. what, were, what were you pursuing career-wise and purpose-wise? What was, what was your direction in life, if you will? Yeah, again, I said that Greg and I were different. So Greg went in law enforcement. Um, he was, again, um, he took a path of public service, like my mom, teacher, dad, fireman. I kind of went in a different direction because, like I said, we were opposite. So I was more extrovert. I was very social. Um, I was very involved. My career path took me, I started working, um, my first job out of school was a corporate job in a Fortune 500 company. Um, 
And while I was there, um, many of my experiences are what what brought me to write the book that I wrote um, based on a lot of the, the actual things that happened to me. But I also was an entrepreneur at heart and I really didn't know what that meant. I really didn't know what an entrepreneur was, to be honest, back in the, I'll date myself, early 90s. That wasn't so oh. much a thing. And I remember getting tank. a- it's yeah, before Shark Tank, so nobody yeah. knew. <laughs> I, I remember getting a magazine called Entrepreneur Magazine. Um, I don't know how I got on the subscription, but it would show up on my desk. And I'm like, what is an entrepreneur? Like, how is it that you could literally, like, be your own boss? Because I was so just all I had been exposed to was a corporate environment. So, But what I do know now is that that burning desire to do something that was mine And I was willing for it to be my success or my failure, but I always had that. um, And I just didn't know what it was. And it was that entrepreneurial flame and and fire. Um, And I ended up doing some things entrepreneurial um, while I was still at Sony. So, you know, if you kind of, if we were to, you know, look at my past, um, I did multiple things while I was working full time. And that was me, I think, pursuing that entrepreneurial thread that I had. So you, you work in your way up the corporate ladder and you wrote this uh, fascinating book, Vigilance, The Savvy Woman's Guide to Personal Safety, Self-Protection Measures and Countermeasures. Uh, I love the name of your company, uh, the Stiletto Agency. That's a, I mean, why this, maybe it's kind of obvious, I guess, but why the Stiletto Agency? Because you could pick a hundred different names. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I wanted to something to be bold. I wanted it to be somewhat feminine. And um, if you look at the logo and you look pretty closely, it was a play on words of a stiletto heel. And then the, the heel is actually a knife. It's not a true stiletto knife, but it's, uh, you know, a form. So it was kind yeah. of like bold, edgy. Um, it had to do with, you know, the empowerment, the safety. So that's where that came yeah. from. I get that. One last question on this before we get to the main event. Why the sort of passion around uh, helping women learn safety and empowerment and protection? And uh, what led you to going down that track? Um, as I had touched on before, it was my personal experience traveling young as a young professional um, in the early 90s. And I really, quite frankly, wasn't prepared. And I found myself in mm-hmm. some situations that um, I should have recognized to avoid altogether. Um, once I was in what I would call cringy situations, I didn't necessarily know how to get myself out of them. Um, you know, I would mm-hmm. potentially, you know, sometimes I would go to close business because I had a quota that I had to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the person on the other side of the table was, you know, more interested in asking me what I was doing after my day was over rather than talking about the business at hand. And I, I just really was left with not knowing what to do and, and had to kind of think on my feet um, in some situations. And there's, again, I found myself in a few that I shouldn't have been in because I should have recognized um, how to avoid them, which is what led me to, to write the book. Um, I have three kids, two girls, and I quite frankly wanted them to be more prepared to go out into the world than I was. My company um, was an awesome company, but they did nothing to teach me how to travel on my own, again, as a young professional. So I started when I was 23. I wasn't even old enough to rent a car yet, so they would have to sign waivers. So I was certainly not um, necessarily prepared to, to know how to handle some of these professional situations. 
I'll jump in and say one thing about the book. Um, well, two things about the book. One, it was featured in the New York Times, which is kind of awesome. Um, uh, so that your right, your insights into how to uh, how women can can be vigilant and protect themselves was was featured in there. Um, but also, Shelley, after you know, you and I worked together for a little bit. Um, I still can't be on an airplane and overhear a conversation where a young woman is talking to a young man and it's probably innocuous. I don't know. And she talks about, well, yeah, I live here. And I, and I remember one time, the first time that happened after I had read your book, I texted you after I got off the plane going, you want that book? What just happened on this situation? I mean, it, it, it truly, it, 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 it makes all of your, your radar go up. Uh, not in a bad way where you see, you see bad people around every corner, but to keep you vigilant, to keep you aware of your surroundings and aware of how you're interactive. So I, uh, I wholeheartedly endorse your book for that, uh, for that reason. Yeah. Thank you. So let's talk about kind of the event that changed your life because listeners are probably wondering I wonder, wonder what that was so just talk a bit about that event that day and yeah so Greg was a 30-year um, law enforcement FBI task force officer and he was just exiting his office um, one day and uh, walking to his car and was ambushed um, and murdered it was not a targeted event um, the suspect was was really there i believed to to kill everybody in the building um but it was greg's heroic actions um in his last moments that alerted them to what was going on and they were able to come out and engage um so he fought to the last seconds that that obviously changed your life your family's life parents he had, from what I've read, two kids, didn't he? Like a son and a daughter. He did. He had twins um, that were 18. So talk about just the, you've obviously set up some things since, but just talk about those days, weeks, months, just, um, you know, you mentioned before that event changed your whole life. The four tent poles bond was gone. So just talk about, mm -hmm. I know it's an obvious question, but forgive me, but just talk about how that changed your life and your family's life, that event. Yeah, so I mean, I can I can kind of go down a couple paths. I noticed early on that um, the emotions that I was experiencing um, were absolutely, of course, deep sadness and uh, just strong anger. And angry anger is a very effective emotion that comes with a lot of energy. I again, recognized early because I, I, I know myself and that energy needed to go to something that was productive and not destructive. I and my family had committed that this act would not be left where it was. So um, just a story, as we were talking about the services for Greg, um, my mom, we, we grew up Catholic. My dad went to a Catholic school. My kids go to a Catholic school. We were raised Catholic. She still goes to church, you know, God loving. And before, when we sat down to talk about um, the services with the priest, my mom just stopped and it's kind of out of her character. And she said, before I talk about anything, I need to know why, you know, why would God let this happen? And our priest said very matter-of-factly my mom's name is Dottie he said Dottie 
make no mistake, God had nothing to do with this. Mm. This was an act of pure evil. The way God responds is he will give the strength to make something good come of this. And it was honestly in those moments of hearing that where I committed that I would do something. I didn't really know what at the time, but um, I I was determined to make something good come of this evil and it would not end at that evil act and evil would not win. And that is really where my conviction came. The nonprofit came um, a little bit after. I mean, that conversation happened within two days. So, um, you know, that was the first thing, that conviction And then the noticing of these emotions and the energy that comes with that. And it just kind of naturally came that we were going to, that I would, I, again, I didn't do this alone. My family was, um, you know, part of it, but we committed to honoring, memorializing Greg's life and legacy because Greg was one of the good guys. Greg was actually making a difference on this earth and um, we cannot glorify evil and and not raise um, the stories and the lives and the legacies of those who truly are doing good. So that's really what the mission I, I called Mary Siller, who is with the Tunnels to Towers Foundation, um, just out of the blue. And she, you know, I, I reached out to them just through their website and ended up getting on the phone with her. And I said, you know, I think I'm getting ready to embark on something real similar to what you did to memorialize your brother um, and the sacrifice he made on 9-11. What do I need to know? Like, you know, what are, what are the avoidable things as I start out? And she gave me the most sound advice that I have gone back to over and over. And she just said, whatever you do, make sure his essence is seen in what you do. Just, you know, whatever he would still be doing if he were here, let that drive your organization. And that's absolutely what we have gone back to. What would he want? What would he do? He was very much a mentor. He was very um, much a trainer, a leader. So that's where the hope, help, and healing comes from. He would not want any of his brothers um, to be sad or to be struggling um, at his loss. A little side note, though, is that the community that I'm from, Terre Haute, is a community about the size of 60,000. Our police force is about 130. We have lost three officers in the line of duty in the last 10 years. There are officers that are serving that have lost three of their brothers in the last 10 years. Hmm. Then to ask them to put the uniform on the day after, you know, they've lost one of their own, knowing that, you know, right now, and you you mentioned it early, this environment is not necessarily an easy environment to operate in. You know, they feel it. They see it. Um, then you add on that their, their wives are concerned every time they walk out the door. Their kids see what's going on. So they have all of that to contend with. This organization exists through him to make sure that his brothers have the resources, the backing, the support that they need to continue to do their job because that's what he would want. I, I want to talk a bit about the organization, but just before we get there, um, there are going to be listeners hearing this who've been through loss, they've lost a loved one, or they've gone through some tragedy, and 
One of the things we say at Beyond the Crucible is, you know, when you go through a crucible experience, you have a choice. You can't undo what happened, whether it was a mistake you made or something horrific that was done to you, which is this case. And and obviously, you know this, unfortunately, too well. There's one path that leads to anger, bitterness, proverbially hide under the covers and say, I'm going to be angry, bitter, and sad for the next 30, 40, 50 years, and eventually life ends and the pain stops. Some obviously cut that short by sadly taking their own life. They just cannot take you know, the grief, the anger, the whatever. And another path is one that you've taken, which is this was wrong, this is awful, but how do I get beyond this? How do I not just be a pool of grief for the next 50 years? I mean, how did you make that choice? Because not everybody makes the choice that you did who's been through your circumstances. And I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying one is maybe is hopeful and leaves a legacy perhaps, and one is not very helpful. So how did you make that choice to go the direction that you did? Well, um, I think I'm a bit stubborn. I'm a bit feisty. <laughs> and really? yeah. I know. <laughs> and, um, you know, to be quite honest, it's kind of what I said before, evil will not win. So if I gave up and, and my family gave up, we would have lost more than one life as this family. Because to your point, you stopped living. And that was not an option because then evil would win. So I truly believe that that we are being given God's strength to um, just look evil in the face dead on and be, we will be way bigger. This act will not end the way you hoped. We will outshine it and we will take your evil act and we will um, compound it a hundred times for good. So it is just an attitude and a mindset and just a grit and um, a fight, a fight mentality. I know he's going to ask you um, about the foundation in particular, but I want to ask you because you're the first guest we've had on this series and we we've, we've wrestled a bit believe it or not with what we were going to call this it like like occurred to me earlier in the week we're going to record Shelly at the end of the week and we don't have a name and so we started kicking around names and we we were uh, there was concern on our parts that what we ended up calling it gaining from loss might be misinterpreted right the idea that how can anything good come out of loss? But what you've just described, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say that you have indeed, as much as you lost, and it was great, you have gained something through that process as well, that you are putting toward memorializing and carrying forth Greg's legacy? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that at the end of the day, more people will know who he was and the good that he did maybe than otherwise. I mean, he was an incredibly humble person. So we're learning things about him that we didn't even know. I mean, important work that he was doing that was truly making a difference um, for, you know, local and, and, and honestly at a bigger level, national security, just because of the, the jobs that he was working on. So yeah. Um, I think it would be fair to say that I, I've gained I, I, this. What I'm talking about today, this organization was not on my radar 16 months ago. I mean, I was to your point earlier was kind of doing my own thing. You deal with the cards you're dealt and, and we were dealt this card. And, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, we is this the way that, you know, he was supposed to go out? And 
at first I was like, absolutely not. This was again, evil, pure, pure evil that appeared on this earth. But um, I will say that he was a badass, to be honest. He was a warrior. And more people know that now because of this. And, and I truly think that people have been inspired by his story and the good guys, which he was, do make a difference. I don't, it's a kind of a long roundabout way to answer, but mm. it is the circumstance you're given. So you find the good. And yes, I've, I've gained, I have gained so many friends um, that I would have never met through this loss. And Gary, you know, we, we worked together on a right. conference for law enforcement. And, you know, at the end of that conference, what I have surmised is that we lost one. We will help many. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's something you said to us before in preparation for this, something you wrote to us, which I found very profound. You said um, that you should, you know, basically do something that makes you feel like you're affecting the situation. And you mentioned the saying, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. I mean, that's a profound thought you have. Just tell us a bit about what you meant by that. Yeah. And, and again, I have to say, those are not my words. I've seen that quote, but I have adopted that. Um, and yeah, doing something has been the most thing that I could possibly do. Um, because again, I, if I did nothing if we did nothing, evil would win and it, it is not going to win. So by doing something, you're, you're processing grief, you're taking action. That is the most therapeutic thing that I have found that wor- has worked for me. To your point, completely respect. That's not how everybody processes grief. Um, sometimes they need to go and, and be you know secluded and, and be quiet. That's just not how I'm made up. I mean, I am am more of an extrovert. So by me feeling like I am um, doing something and taking action is how I am working through this grief. I go back to what you said at the very start of our conversation when you um, said, and then I got subscribed to Entrepreneur Magazine and I have no idea how that happened. I think as you've told this story and we see the arc of your life, I think we have an idea why that happened because that entrepreneurial spirit that was birthed in you helped you birth this organization project never broken. Yeah, no, I, I I would agree. And I, and again, I truly, I did not register. So to your point, maybe somebody knew something more than I did at a time. And I was meant to have that magazine because I did not, I didn't subscribe to it because I didn't even know what it was. (laughs) Well, I, I want to ask about Project Never Broken, but just before we do, let me make a comment that obviously we're all wired differently. Some are extroverts, introverts, artistic, mathematical. So how we process grief uh, is is different. But yet I think there are some lessons for all of us that however you're wired, uh, to your point, to me, evil wins if you're just never get out of bed and are angry, bitter, and... If you let evil defeat you, then evil does win. If you so, no matter how you're wired, there are some lessons for everybody. Your attitude is, evil won't win. I'm going to turn this evil for good. So that might mean th- different things for different people. But I feel like there's some overarching lessons from your response that's true for everybody. Is that fair? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Yes, evil should never have the last say. 
So let's talk about Project Never Broken because you could have supported the legacy of your brother in many ways. Why this way? I mean, tell us a bit about Project Never Broken and what led you to set up this nonprofit and just honor him and his legacy this particular way? Um, again, I think it's that essence. Um, he was very much a trainer. Everyone wanted to be mentored by him. He always stepped up. He would have wanted people to um, move on in a, in a productive way. So this hope, help, and healing represented you know, what he would still be doing if, if he were here. Um, the honoring resiliency is the second part of that. And it's kind of what we're talking about here. How do you come back? Like you, you need to to recognize people who do get back up on their feet. Um, I heard something recently: fall steps, fall seven, stand eight. Um, no matter how many times you get knocked down, you got to get back up, and um, that's the resiliency. And we need to honor that um, because that's what we're asking everybody to be in this day and age. As far as the name of the the organization, that's actually got a, a deep meaning too. My dad was in Vietnam and he was in infantry and the logo or the motto on his uniform, which I actually have his patch. I'm going to grab it right here. This was his patch mm. that he wore on mm. his uh, uniform. And it says Nunquam Fractum, which translates directly to never broken. So that's where the name um, of the organization came from. My dad fought in Vietnam and it didn't break him. Greg fought to the bitter last moment. It didn't break him. And so this will not break me, my family, or my community. So non-quim fractum translates directly to never broken. Um, if you look at the logo, um, if, if you go and search it, um, you'll see three stitches um, that connect non-quim and fractum. And that represents the hope, help, and healing. Um, then there's a little flag um, on the logo that's 129. That was Greg's badge number. And then the logo appears worn and that represents the 30 years of service. So there was, um, there's deep meaning behind the name of the organization and it's very intentional um, as to why it's called that. So what's the, what's your vision for your organization? I mean, what is your hope that this, that this will do? Um, never broke, broken, so that we will provide those resources to our law enforcement and first responder community. Um, mental health is a big factor for them. Um, it, there's compound trauma and stress that sometimes doesn't get recognized because they are who we look to um, for help, but who's helping them? And Greg absolutely would want his brothers and sisters to be supported. So that's what the mission of the organization is doing. And we're having a little fun, too, um, again, pulling in his personality. So um, for the one-year anniversary date of, of the loss, um, we collaborated with a local brewery, and um, we brewed a custom brew. They called it Numquam Fractum, and it released um, on July 7th. And so, you know, we intentionally did not want that day to be heavy. We didn't want it to be sad. He would not have wanted that. So we had a kind of a, if you would say, a party um, at the brewery and everyone came and toasted, you know, non-quam fractum. Uh, and I would say that be the person, live the life that hundreds of people come back to honor and memorialize you. And that's exactly what happened. That speaks a lot. 
when that many people will come back um, and celebrate you. Um, and then we had a concert. Um, Greg was in a band in high school. It was called Overland. Uh, we put together a concert called Overland Overtime. Um, that was something that I was always joking with he and some of his bandmates that they should do a reunion concert. And then I had been just joking that for a few years. And um, when this happened, um, we made it happen. We we did a, a kind of a tribute concert come, called Overland Overtime. And they had like hand-drawn um, their their logo was like literally hand-drawn. And then they they filled it in with like, like markers, really. They were just like fabric markers. Um, so we took that and we digitized because we had the original one of one of the band guys had his original, like they literally can't. Um, and we digitized it and we produced shirts um that said Overland, just like you know, 1985 when they played. Um another fun thing we did is when Greg would go visit somebody and they weren't in their office, he would leave drawings. And um, we turned all of the drawings that we had into T-shirts. Um, so again, the essence that, that Mary had suggested, um, when anybody would see those shirts, he drew himself the same way every time. It just makes you smile because that's you know him. And it was always him in some kind of a battle. And um, he was always winning. You know, it was either a shark eating a little <laughs> small swimmer or it was a blowing up a little person. So, you know, we've had fun with it too, but again, that's his essence and that's just who he was. He was, I, I said he was really humble. Um, and I always um, define that by, he didn't think less about himself. He just thought about himself less. He was always about the person he was with. Um, and Greg did some undercover work in his early years. He was under, he was on a drug task force and did undercover work. And he was really, really good at it because he could blend in. He blend, he could blend into any, any crowd that he was in, unlike me, who I, you know, I, I stand out because I talk loud and I, you know, very social. He could stand back and observe and be a bit of a, a chameleon and a, and a wallflower. He was really, really good at his craft. So talk about how maybe it's again obvious that they might always feel supported, but because um, they're thinking of others, but you're here to try and think of them more, right? Yeah, absolutely. So talk a bit about that. Yeah, and, and to that point, we we literally just partnered with a national organization called the Wounded Blue last week, um, and Project Never Broken, and another nonprofit organization that was that was created for much of the same reason that Project Never Broken was. It's called Peacemaker Project Seven Hundred Three. Um, that family's officer was responding to a domestic violence call and was shot and killed within seven seconds of being on scene. To your point they are doing the job that we ask them to do and that we call them to do. And they do it very selflessly. Um, they literally put their life on the line for complete strangers. So they have to know in order to continue to do that job that somebody has their back because we are making their operating um, environment very difficult with all the things that you know are at play right now that we don't have to run through. We know what the environment looks like. I want them to know Project Never Broken wants them to know that we have your six, that we are here for you, and we know that you are human, and we cannot expect you to do these things that we are asking you to do um, without having some kind of, of consequence, because it's a consequence of the job. Um, they still will sign up to do it. Um, they don't really ask for anything, but we just need to 
to offer it. Um, and, and they need to know that there is help and resources there. I've had one traumatic event. I've had one big T trauma that it knocked me on my butt. I cannot imagine day in, day out having what is called small T trauma, which adds up and compounds to even bigger effects um, and not having some way to ask for help. So we are here to be on scene to offer that help and let them know if you need to go talk to someone and you want to do it in a very confidential way, we will help make that happen. And we will also be very public in, in our support as well. And that event that you spoke about that you had, which is last week when we're taping this, it's in October for those who are listening to this, um, was mm -hmm. called the Law Enforcement Survival Summit. I'll thank you publicly. I was honored that you asked me to come down and capture some of the stories of the folks, uh, the speakers who were there and some of the attendees who were there. But one of the things that really struck me about that, that goes to the point that you just made, that in that event, one of the the, the really strongest aspects of that event was the peer teams, right? Those people, uh, those officers who had, had gone through sometimes small T trauma, sometimes uh, large T trauma, but they were there to watch the attendees, not in a, in a creepy way, but to watch people who were listening to the speakers to see if they were triggered by anything, see if something made them, made them, you know, sort of, uh, feel, uh, you know, uh, bad under assault again in some way. And they were there to talk them through that. That's part of the mission of what this right. summit was about, right? Correct. Um, it, you know, and it's interesting. I've never sat at a table with so many individuals, so many humans who have been physically shot. I mean, it was nothing for me to be the only person at the table that yeah. had not been shot. And it was interesting to me that, that, I heard stories all through the week, probably much like you did, Gary. Um, right. But it's interesting that officers that were involved in some of those shootings and they were not the ones to be shot, they literally would have preferred to have been physically wounded as opposed to the emotional wounds that they were mm -hmm. healing from. Because people cannot see those emotional wounds and we know how that happens with trauma and we know that's kind of what the mental um, uh, injuries are, they would prefer to be physically shot because they can see that heal. Everyone knows that they were hurt. And so they expect certain behaviors. Um, when you can't see their wounds, and it's much like, you know, some of the illnesses that people have that are not outward facing, those are the harder ones for them to get over. And it's, it's mental for them. Like when, if they were shot, they could see that wound healing and they kind of healed along with it when you don't have something to heal how do you know that you're getting better it's, it's it was a very interesting again this is all new to me i mean i i was i've only been in this space for 16 months but what i am learning is shocking you know what you're saying shelly is so profound that if you're not in law enforcement which you know i'm not certainly it's tough to understand but um you have to make, uh, same in probably Afghanistan, Iraq, or Vietnam at times, you have to make split-second decisions. And you hope that your training allows you to make the right one. I'm sure in the vast majority of ones you do. But even if you make the right one, and you're told, as they say on the police shows, it was a good shoot, right? They analyzed, you did everything you write, you followed the book. There's still this, I'm sure, sense of trauma. Could I have done something different? 
could have de-escalated it without shooting. Even when every expert says, nope, you followed the book, you did everything right. It's just traumatic. So maybe 30, 40 years ago, people, I guess, were probably told, suck it up, you know, be tough, yeah. which is, you know, a common thing, especially to say to, to men. But now, hopefully, we're in a different place where people realize it's tough. It's not weakness to seek strength. Right. I think a, a strong person says, I can't do it all. I need counseling. I need help. I need, you know, I need somebody to help heal me. And it takes time. So do you feel like we're in a place where a lot of the officers, you know, are willing to say, you know what, it's not weak to ask for help. It's just smart, you know, mm-hmm. and if I don't seek help, it's going to affect my family and those I love. Because you know what they say, hurt people, hurt people. Absolutely. You, know, you don't want to hurt the people you love, but you will unless you seek help. So talk a bit about, because I'm sure that's probably part of what you do at Project Never Broken. Do you feel like the message is getting out that, you know, officers in the line of duty are realizing they have to seek help? It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of courage. I do. And I think the program um, that was put on last week was a great example of that because these officers who have been in um, lots of different situations, when they tell their story, the officers in the audience, you would just see heads nodding. They're not ever Mm -hmm. situations that I've been in because I am, you know, I'm not even brave enough to do the job. I'll be honest. I am not wired that way to run to danger. They all are. And when these presenters um, who had been through horrific situations would tell their story, it's kind of like what, you know, military likes to talk to military peers Law enforcement likes to talk to law enforcement. So you would see heads nodding. Yes, I think that there's a long way to go because that culture is just kind of that brave, you know, strong um, culture. However, I do think that by talking about it and putting people up there who are brave enough to share their stories and be vulnerable have more impact than we could ever know. So to answer your question, yes. We will continue to do that. Um, we do that on those conference skills, and then we do kind of mini workshops where you know I've already in conversations to bring a couple of those speakers um, who were on stage to come back and do a more intimate workshop with a smaller group of people because that's where the the conversation happens. But yes, by those who have been through situations, they're willing to be vulnerable and share it. You can absolutely see heads start to nod. And I think you just have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until, you know, more understand than don't that what you just said, you know, being weak is, a, is actually a sign of strength. And into that fact, if these things didn't bother these guys and, and, and women, that wouldn't be human. They're humans. And you and, and they absolutely respond to calls of child abuse, of child fatalities. And they, you know, if they have a child, I've heard this in separate occasions more than 10 times when they respond, they see their child's face on that, you know, child Mm -hmm. who didn't survive. So if that ever gets to not affecting them, that's where we need to be concerned. They're human and they have human emotions. And for so long, I think there was just this um, perception in this culture that they cannot be bothered by that. And and we do not want that as officers on the street. We don't want them feeling like that's how they have to behave. We want them to be able to process this. Just like I said, working on this nonprofit is processing grief for me. 
They need to be able to talk about what they've seen so that they can process it, work through it, and and it does not carry with them as they go back out on the street. And again, a very um, it's a very different environment environment for them now. So they need to go out there, present in the moment, not carrying a lot of this um, with them as they clock in. That's you know it's it's safer for them and it's safer for the community. That is a um, a good time for the captain to turn on the fasten seatbelt sign indicating that we will begin our descent into closing up our conversation. Before we do that, a couple of things. One, um, I, I just want to um, amplify what you said. My father was a cop, as you know. That's the reason you asked me to come out there. I, I, I wanted to come out there to honor him. And he was a he died last year at 93. I didn't know much about he's one of those guys from that era mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s who just didn't talk about those things right. that happened. Uh, you know, I'm his youngest son. I didn't hear any of those stories of things that happened. I know that that he went to his grave, not telling many people that. And the, the, the great thing about living to be 93 is that you're around a long time. The bad thing is a lot of your friends and all the people that you shared the front lines with have gone. And I, and he had no one he could share those things with. And I could see that he just, he just avoided it. And I think his life was less rich because of it. And he would have when I was at the event, what I, what I came away with, one of the things I came away with was that my dad could have used that, even though he did mm-hmm. not, as far as I know, he'd never talked about it. He'd ever shot anybody. Some of those small T traumas were were truly small T, uh, but I know he went through some things that he did not feel comfortable talking about. Before I let Warwick ask you the final question, Shelley, however, I would be remiss if I did not give you the chance to let our listeners know where they can learn more about Project Never Broken. Yeah, you can visit projectneverbroken.org or follow us on social on Facebook at Project Never Broken. Well, thank you again, Shelley. I mean, a couple, probably a lot of questions, but a couple of questions <laughs> occur to me. Uh, when you go through a loss like this, it would be normal if anger overwhelmed you. Not that you weren't angry. Of course, you were angry. But sometimes anger and bitterness, at least from my perspective, can be like poison. You know, the, the, the people that do the evil typically could care less, which is galling about they often don't have remorse. They just may be too messed up or evil or what have you. But at least from my perspective, there's a se- sense of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean condoning evil. But I often think if you don't forgive, you know, you're like it's like drinking poison. So how did you manage, I'm assuming that you did, again, not condoning evil, but how did you manage to sort of, what did you forgive if you get kind of what I'm asking? Because I'm not saying condoning evil, but, mm-hmm. you know, how did you manage to avoid anger and bitterness just overwhelming you, so to speak? Oh, I don't know that I can say I've forgiven I just don't know that I've even come to that. This is still an open case. I mean, the, the trial right. starts in federal court um, in in May. Oh so yeah. um, I'm not sure I've just even gotten to that yet. I will just right. say right. I redirected and I took control of what mm-hmm. I could affect and the change that I could affect. And that's how I have moved forward. So I don't have to forget or, mm-hmm. or forgive or or sure. anything at this point. I am just not sure. letting you control anything. You're non you are a non-factor. Um and I am right. I am marching forward um doing my thing. So um yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I haven't even 
it's still open. <sighs> so um, I don't know how I will be. I, I, I don't know. Forgive it to me as a, I don't know. That's something I'll have to really pray about. <laughs> it's a, it's a tough thing. I mean, certainly what I went through is nothing like what you went through, but um, yeah, for me losing a you know family business, it was more forgiving myself, my own uh, mistakes. Again, it's not even in the same league as what you're going through. It's very different, but um, yes, as we finish, there are other people that are listening that are uh, going to go through loss or tragedy. You know, some may be dissimilar, some may be extremely different. What would a word of hope that you would offer listeners who've gone through profound tragedy and loss? Oh, you know, again, it's going to be different. But what worked for me was taking control of the situation. Again, it wasn't a situation I wanted to be in, but I, you know, was not going to let anything other than my own objective and mission drive my action. So I spend my energy being very intentional about the outcomes that I want. And I just do not have time. And again, I I will not let this take more than one life. And I have a family and, you know, I did find myself, my my family did suffer early on until I was just able, um, you know, those waves come further, but, you know, make no mistake, my, my, kids walked in on me just crying. And I'm like, I can't do this. You know, if I do this, and I'm not here for them, then again, more than one life is lost. And if I go, then you know, how does that affect my kids? And I just was not willing to make that an option. So um, take control, turn away from what whatever that is, and do good, affect change, you know, be the change, take action on something you're no longer willing to accept. Again, that, that phrase that I borrowed from someone else, but it fit for me. And that is a uh, listener. That is a great phrase on which to land the plane. Do good. That's been uh, the focus of what Warwick's tried to do with uh, Beyond the Crucible since its start which um, Facebook told me through its memories function, this podcast started just over three years ago. So look at that. I had hair when it started, kidding. Um, But uh, uh, until the next time we are together, listener, we do know that uh, crucible experiences are painful. We're in this season right now, this series right now, where we're talking about loss, which is a crucible experience, uh, truly devastatingly, traumatically, with a capital T to Shelley's point, painful. But as we believe just occurred on this show, uh, there is hope in that. There is still gains that can come from loss. Do good. Don't give up hope. Keep moving forward. We'll see you next week. 